Let us then return to Acts chapter 8. And focusing on these verses we read earlier, verses 1 to 25. The title for our meditation tonight will be Moving Onwards. Moving Onwards. Last week we noticed the stoning of Stephen. And indeed that was a terrible incident for the early church to go through. And on a human level, they must truly have been very disappointed and broken-hearted to lose such a godly, useful individual. And we're told here in verse 2, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. They did mourn for him. Oh, Stephen was a saved man. And Stephen, towards the end, he saw the Lord Jesus Christ standing, awaiting him, his arrival, as it were, into heaven. But the brethren made a great lamentation for him. But friends, it was a Christian burial, and they did not mourn as ones who have no hope. They did mourn. It was fit and proper that they should mourn, but they had this blessed and wonderful hope. And after the death of Stephen, the church experienced a terrible time of persecution that led to the spreading of the gospel. This is what we find in these verses that we read. Satan rose up against the church and caused the death of one of the stars of the church. And he thought that this would do some harm to the church. But God, who is sovereign in all matters, overruled all things. And although on a human level it was a great loss to the church, yet it was all part of God's plan. In order that the church would break free from Jerusalem, and go out now and really begin to truly spread the gospel. And what we find here is that gospel went to Samaria first, and we will speak about that at the appropriate time. But from this point onwards, really Jerusalem ceased to be the center of the Christian church. There was a change. And ultimately the gospel would go to the Gentiles and to the very ends of the earth. Well, there are three headings that I wish to present to you this evening for your edification as we go through uh, these verses. The first thing to notice is obviously here, a zealous persecutor, a zealous persecutor. And we have that recorded for us in verses one to three, and it's Saul of Tarsus. Saul, we're told, consented to the death of Stephen. And as we go through the book and as you read the letters of Paul, you will notice that that incident had a profound effect upon him. It shaped his future. But in the immediate aftermath of that, Paul began to engage in a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. 
and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now we may well, well wonder, why did the apostles, why were they not separated? Why were they not sent out as well? Well, the likelihood is because we're in a period of transition from Judaism to Christianity, the apostles, who were all Jews, would more than likely still be taking part in all of the Judaism acts of worship. And therefore, it was not so obvious that they belonged to Christianity. Remember here, Stephen was one of the Hellenistic uh, Christians. He was one of the Greek-speaking Christians. And it does seem that the persecution affected them more than the Jewish-speaking Christians. And this is possibly one reason why the apostles were not so much touched with this bout of persecution. They were able to remain in Jerusalem. And we're told then that devout men carried Stephen to his burial. But Saul, in contrast, what do we find? He made havoc of the church. And such was his intensity and hatred of the cause of Christ that he went into every house, hailing men and women, committing them to prison. And as he says in one of his letters, he was causing them to blaspheme. He was causing them or seeking to cause them to deny the very Savior whom they had come to trust upon. Such was his hatred for the cause of Christ. And he became there at this particular time the most vociferous, zealous persecutor that the church has ever had. This kind of behavior, friends, can affect all religions. In some of the bad times in the Christian religion, uh, people who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have taken up arms and have become persecutors of other people. We must be very careful what we do because that kind of behavior normally would be counterproductive. It's not what is required of the Christian. The Christian must never resort to this kind of treatment whereby we go around physically beating people and hauling them into prison and doing terrible things to them, like stoning them, what Saul did on this occasion. This is not part of Christianity. If you live by the sword, you shall die by the sword. And the words of the James are appropriate to quote here, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And Saul, with his blinded zeal, thought he was serving God when he was seeking to destroy the cause of Christ. And only later on, when his eyes were opened, that he come to the understanding that he was fighting against God, and it was absolutely impossible for him ultimately to win. And indeed, this is something that should not be found in an, in an office bearer. Paul, when he was given the qualifications for elders, whether they be 
teaching elders or ruling elders. One of the qualifications is stated like this, not given to wine, no striker, not guilty of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Now these were just some of the requirements that belong to the office of the office bearer. And clearly there when he says no striker and not a brawler, that the man of God, the minister or the office bearer, he's not to get involved in physical physical confrontations. He's not to be like the apostle or Saul of Tarsus here. He is indeed to be patient. He is to be amiable. Yes, he's to be firm and stand in his convictions, of course, and he is to nail his colors to the mast. But the weapons that belong to the Christian and to the office bearer are not physical weapons. We don't advance the cause of Christ by guns or bombs or bullets. We leave that to the false religions. What have we got? Our weapons are the truth, the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. And we are to use that intelligently. We are to use it in the power and the demonstration of the Spirit. We are to convince people by the truth and we are not to use any other weapons. We are to use the weapon of prayer, that wonderful weapon whereby we are able to engage in, in intercession and supplication and thanksgiving and make our requests made known unto God. And God who hears, as our first psalm will tell us, God who hears prayer answers prayer. These are the weapons that we are to employ, not physical, not to, to destroy people physically. This is repugnant indeed to the cause of Christ. And of course, we find today in the, in the world that we live in, there is one particular religion who seeks to promote and to advance its cause simply by the gun, the bullet, the sword, the bombs. Friends, this is the work of the evil one. We are to have nothing to do with it. But as we notice that we are to have nothing to do with this kind of behavior, when we see what happened eventually to Saul, that he became Paul the apostle, does this not encourage us to pray for those who persecute us, for those who seek to overthrow Christianity, those who are determined and all out to bring about the destruction of the, of the cause of Christ? Are we not encouraged to pray for them? How many people in this world are just like Saul here, who are out to destroy Christ and his cause? And what happened to him? He was transformed. Does this not remind us then that we have a, a warrant to pray for such people like this? And we have confidence that God is able to change the most hard line of enemies. He's able to change them. And indeed, he's able to change those who are apathetic and who are indifferent, who couldn't care less about Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, who don't care about religion at all. And there are many people like that. We are therefore inclined to be able to come to the Lord our God and when we see hardness, whether it's physical hardness or apathy or indifference, 
Friends, we have a warrant to pray, and we do believe that God hears prayer when we pray in faith, and therefore we are to pray for our persecutors. We are to pray for the enemies of the gospel, because as we will know, as we shall see, what a wonderful change was brought about for the cause of Christ when this one individual was, was saved, when this one individual bowed the knee unto King Jesus. See what God can do with one person. Now, we're not ones who promote celebrities in any sense. We don't say for one moment, would it not be great if so-and-so as a celebrity, celebrity became a Christian? What an influence they might have. Well, that might well be the case. But one ordinary individual can make a tremendous difference under God. Think about Moses. He was used. We can still feel his effect today. Under God, wonderful things happen. And those who may be at the moment zealous persecutors may indeed be turned into trophies of grace and their influence can go on and last for generations and generations. Have you got prodigals in your family? Have you got people whom, as far as you can ascertain, they are lost in trespasses, dead in sins, their heart is like granite, they won't hear the gospel, they don't want anything to do with it? Well, here was one who was exactly the same, but God in his time changed him. And this is for our encouragement, and this is for our great hope. Following on, what do we have then? We have a faithful preacher. Philip here, verses 4 to 8. Philip, he was a deacon, but he was took part in the in the persecution, and he had to leave his relatively peaceful life in Jerusalem when everything was hunky-dory. He had nothing to worry about, but this persecution came upon him, and what does he do? He goes to Samaria. Now, you might not think there's anything special or significant in that, but friends, there is. There is. There was great hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it was centuries old. If we can briefly recount the history of this problem, it really began after the days of Solomon. When Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was split into two. There was the kingdom that became known as Israel, with the ten tribes in the north, and the other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they were in the south. So there was two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And Israel's capital was Samaria. And there was great division from that time on. And as time went on, the division became stronger and stronger and wider and wider. And in BC 722, BC 722, because of their idolatry, 
the people of Israel were taken into captivity by the king of Assyria. And most of the people were deported and taken away with the king of Assyria. Some Jews remained. And to repopulate the area, the king of Assyria put non-Jews into the land of Israel. And these non-Jews bred with the Jews that were left in Samaria, so that they became half-castes. They were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. And the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And that hatred grew when, when the people in Samaria built a temple in, that was to be a rival to the temple in Jerusalem. So there was this long-standing division between the Jews and the half-caste Jews, the Samaritans. And Jesus experienced it in his own day. He was going to go to Samaria, but the Samaria, Samaritans would not receive him. And that's when John and, J John and James said, will we call for fire to come down and destroy the Samaritans? And Jesus said, no, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. But there was this great, this great antagonistic zeal between the two nations. And here was Peter, here was uh, Philip, as a result of the persecution, he went and he preached the gospel to the Samaritans. And we're told there was great joy in that city. Why? Because he had preached and they had received Christ. And we know that the apostles heard about this and they sent a delegation, Peter and John, to see what's going on. They heard the Samaritans had received the gospel. This is something we weren't aware of. This is something we didn't anticipate. So they went and they found out it was true. But there was one thing lacking. One thing lacking. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Now what do we mean by that? Because if, you, if you're a Christian, you must have the Holy Spirit. These people said they believed but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Well, what was happened was they didn't receive the Holy Spirit in the sense that they did not have the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. In other words, they couldn't, for instance, speak in tongues. That gift could only be conferred by the apostles. They were Christians, but they hadn't received that gift, that gift that was given to the early church at Pentecost. They didn't have the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. And when the apostles saw that, they laid their hands on them, and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, why did this happen? Why did this happen this way? Is this normative? Is this what we can expect today? Well, obviously we say no. But why did it happen there? Why is it that, that the apostles had to go from Jerusalem and pray for them that they might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? 
Well, it's for this reason. Because the Samaritans and the Jews were to recognize that there was going to be one church. There was going to be no more divisions between the Jews and the Samaritans. And as the early church in Pentecost had received the gift of the Holy Spirit, so now the church in Samaria who had received Christ were also going to receive the same gift of the Spirit because there's only one church. There's only one Savior, only one baptism, only one way to be reconciled to God. And this division that had gone on for over a century or over a millennium, it was now by the cause of Christ, it was going to be extinguished. No more. Now we say this is not normative. Many, uh, and we'll be charitable here, many charismatics believe, for instance, and we can find charismatics in the Pentecostal church or charismatic churches, and indeed some other churches will have charismatic influences. And what they will say is that according to what we find here in the treatment with the Samaritans, that you are saved, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when you're saved, and when you become a Christian, but you need a further experience. And they call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, something that is subsequent to your first coming to Christ. And therefore they have a two-stage receiving of the Holy Spirit. Once at conversion, and at another time, distinct from and separate from your conversion, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which they call the baptism of the Spirit. We would not accept that view. We do not believe that is biblical. We must be very careful that the early chapters in the book of Acts are not always to be taken as normative. This was not Norman, norm, normal. This was something unique. This was the restoration of the Jews and the Samaritans. And that's why the apostles were sent there, in order that there might be unity and harmony. Because if this did not happen, you would have a Jewish church and you would have a Samaritan church. And that's not what the Christian church is about at all. And of course, we would reject this also because clearly it's only the apostles who could impart this gift of the Holy Spirit? Philip, who was a genuine evangelist and a mighty preacher of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, he had been faithful in bringing forth the message, and they believed it. But he, as a deacon, he could not impart this gift. It was only the apostles. And as we know and believe, friends, when the apostles died off, there were not any others after them. They are the original apostles. And when they died off, their office died off. There are no apostles like Peter, James, and John, 
today. The apostolic era is over. So here we have Philip then preaching the gospel, going around Samaria. Now, when you hear about Samaria, it's a district. But in the district of Samaria, there's also the city of Samaria. And we're not exactly sure what he's talking about. It doesn't really matter. But Samaria sometimes can be a region, and it can mean the actual city of Samaria. But here he was, preaching. We find here in verse 4, this is, this is um, all, what all of them who had taken part in the, in the scattering of the abroad, all of them went everywhere preaching the word. Now the word preaching there means to preach the gospel. It really means to, to speak it, to use it in everyday conversation with one with another. They would go along to the market. They would meet one of the, some of the Samaritans there and they might speak to them about the gospel. But the preaching that we find here in verse 5 that Philip undertook, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. This is a different word. It's a different word for preaching. It means to evangelize. He is there like a, a herald. It's Caruso. He has been sent forth to preach that gospel like a herald. And they listened to him because his word came with power, and also he was able to perform miracles. And therefore many of them believed. Many did. It met with great success. And this is wonderful to note, because now the gospel had gone from Jerusalem, it had gone into Judea, and now it had gone into Samaria, into the Samaritans. And there was one church, and the gospel indeed was moving onwards. But thirdly, we want to notice something else that happened as a result of Philip's preaching. There was a clever deceiver there, Simon the sorcerer. What do we know about him? Well, he was one who was involved in sorcery. In verse 9 we're told, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. People looked up to him, whatever he said or whatever he did, they looked to him, and he was held in some respects in great esteem. But his popularity soon began to wane. Why? Because Philip was preaching the gospel, and they were listening to him. And of course, Philip was able to back up what he said by performing many miracles and signs and wonders. And therefore, this poor man here, he began to see that his popularity waned. And what happened? Well, he heard the gospel too, and he went and got baptized. He said he believed. And Philip, no doubt, would have baptized him, genuine, genuine in believing that he was truly a Christian. But when he saw what the apostles did, and when he saw that by their praying upon people, the gift of the Holy Spirit came upon them, he wanted this power for himself. 
And although the Bible here in our text doesn't mention it, it's obviously clear that when the apostles prayed upon the people, something was able to be seen or heard as a result because Simon wanted what he saw. He saw something happening, and he wanted part of it, and he was prepared to pay for it in order that he might get this gift. And of course, what he did was really reveal that he wasn't really a Christian at all. He may have heard the gospel. He may have been baptized. Indeed, he was baptized, but it never touched his heart at all. He wasn't cut to the heart. He didn't come to that experience when he recognized that he was truly a sinner. He was lost and he was perishing. He was, he was without God and without hope in this world. No, he didn't come to that experience. He didn't truly believe. Peter says, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Now, I'm quite sure there's nobody like Simon here who's involved in sorcery, but do we think that we can purchase the gift of God by money? Or do we think that we can purchase the gift of God by our works? Do we think that we can present ourselves acceptable to God by what we do? The gift of God can only be received, friends, by faith. We cannot earn it, no matter how much money we might give in the plate, no, much money, no matter how much money we might give by bank transfer or whatever. It cannot obtain the favor of God. The only way to get right with God is to have Christ as Lord and Savior. It's to recognize your own deadness and hopelessness and to trust upon him. Now, he thought he could get the gift of the Holy Spirit and he would be able to pass it on to others by buying this from the apostles. Peter goes on, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter did not mince his words there. I put it to you, it's clear that this man was not a real genuine Christian. He may have gone through all the correct steps outwardly, but the heart was not there. He was not genuine. Look at even his answer in verse 24. Answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord. Peter told him to pray. Simon wanted Peter to pray for him. Now it's not wrong to ask people to pray for us. But friends, if we're ever going to be reconciled to God, we have to pray ourselves did David, when he committed adultery, did he turn to others to say, pray for me? No, 
He uttered out his prayer in anguish of soul himself. He approached God using his own words, acknowledging his sin and asking for forgiveness. This is the way it must be. What can we learn then about Simon? Let's be abundantly clear here. There is no perfect congregation. There is no perfect denomination. Here we have the early part of the Christian church, a pure era if ever there was. Apostolic preaching, we might say, under Philip. The true gospel being proclaimed and a false pro profession was made. The man was still in the, in the gall of bitterness. And therefore, every congregation, no matter how many professing Christians there may well be in that congregation, we cannot guarantee that everyone is truly saved. We would be foolish. Didn't Jesus say much the same thing? When he spoke about the, the parable of the tares and the wheat in Matthew's gospel, This, friends, is where we find ourselves. We have to examine ourselves. Is the root of the matter really in us? We may well be baptized, whether by as infants or believers' baptism. We may well be church members. But is the root of the matter in us? You see, friends, whenever God works, and he was working here, he was building his church here. Why? It was a time of onwards. It was a time of persecution, but it was a time when people were being added to the church. Satan will be there. He will sow his tears amongst the wheat. And we are not capable in of ourselves to distinguish. And what happens? The tares and the wheat, they grow together until the harvest, when Jesus Christ alone will be able to separate who are his and who are not. This is what this teaches us here. This is what causes us, therefore, to examine ourselves. Let's not just trust in the outward things of Christianity. Has our heart been circumcised? That's what circumcision teaches us. Part of the flesh was cut off. Real circumcision is the circumcision of the heart, it's inward. It's when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl comes 
to an end of themselves. They're cut. They know conviction of sin. And it might not be a great amount of conviction of sin. That can vary between individuals. But they do recognize their, their sinfulness and they recognize the Savior, that he is the great antidote, that he alone can save. Simon, all he was interested in was money. That was his God. And if he, if he was cut to the heart at all, he was cut to the heart in this extent that he wanted to do what James and John could do. That's what cut him. It wasn't his sin. And he didn't love the Savior. What about ourselves then tonight? We bless God that the gospel has made progress and it's come even to Glasgow. Is Christ our Lord and Savior? Can we honestly say this? Friends, never rest until you're found in him, whom to know is life everlasting. Amen.